Titus chapter 2, and we'll read verses 11 through 14, and we're going to do this really fast, and, uh, and so we'll have some, still be able to enjoy some, some sunlight uh, today um, by the time I finish. In verse 11 of Titus chapter 2, um, Paul writes, he says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for a blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. So now, um, let me share with you. Actually, we'll pray and then I'll share. Father God, I adore You and I thank You for the opportunity, Father God, to come and to, and to teach this, Father, and preach it. And I pray, Father God, that I do it well. I pray, Father God, that I follow everything that You've laid upon my heart, Father God, that I do not deny You in any way, but that I am but that I'm forceful and bold, Father God, in everything You've given me, and that I rely completely on the Scriptures, Father God, and on nothing else. Bless me now, Father God, that I do everything I can to illuminate the Scriptures, Father God, as You illuminate me. I love You, God, and I pray, God, that Jesus is lifted up. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. So now, what we have is... Um, just tracing back through what Paul said, because it's everything we've talked about for about two months now, to be honest with you. Grace of God has appeared, and it brings salvation. Or He brings salvation. Okay, That salvation does more than just save us, but the, the next word that Paul uses or in the English is what? Training. Or teaching. So, the grace of God has come, and He doesn't just make these magnificent and magical transformations, Brother Mike, but the grace of God comes and teaches us a different way. What we're looking for, I need a different way, God teaches it. We're being trained to do all these things, renounce of godliness, worldly passions, that's holiness, that's purity, and to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives. All of this affects how we live on a daily basis, whether we honor God with our lives or dishonor Him, in terms of things, just to be blunt with you, like sin, Brother Joe. That's it. But then, we wait. We're being taught what else to wait for a blessed hope to be patient. Be patient, waiting for the appearing of Christ. Because the second thing we do, besides, besides living a life dedicated to holiness, is now live that patient life. We don't get distracted. Paul says this because... In all these letters, it's a constant theme. It's the idea that people get in this hurry that Jesus is coming back when? Tomorrow. And they're tempted to stop and just wait. Now, waiting that Paul's talking about here is an informed kind of waiting where I realize, um, brother buddy, that Jesus may come back at any day, but that He's probably not coming back right now. And so therefore, there's no reason for me to not continue in what God tells me to do. All right. So we don't just sit in the church all day long. We are trained in the church to go out and do certain things. And then he gets to those. He says, um, Waiting for a blessing of the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify... Now, here's another thing. He reiterates this. To purify for Himself. So what does God want us? How does He want us? He wants us pure. Now, we're going to talk about that because that's a sticky situation, because you and I are by nature not pure, right? By nature, 
Nobody had to teach me how to sin. I figured that out on my own. Nobody's going to have to teach any of our babies in this church how to sin. They figure it out, don't they? They have to learn holiness. They have to be taught holiness. They instinctively do unholy things. So God wants to purify us so we live lives that bring Him glory, but a people of His own possession who are zealous for good works. And I want to seize on that last word there for just a second. And I want to expand on a lot of this. The idea of being zealous. Now, that word in the Greek is uh, zelotes. And it's not just the word for zealous, but it's the word for zealot. Now, we understand from Paul's day, and Paul's writing this to his people, they, Titus knew what a, zealous, what a zealot was. He knew that the zealots were so fanatical about keeping God's law, so fanatical that oftentimes they would resort to violence to maintain purity. They, in fact, were a group of men who were fashioning their lives after Numbers chapter 25, especially verse 11. We find that a great plague is averted. Why? Because Phineas does something violent. Kills a man and his wife with a single spear. That was their model. They were so zealous for the law of God that they would kill somebody to remain pure. So it wasn't just like some of the other Jewish groups who wanted political power from the Romans or other Jewish groups, those the diaspora, those the diaspora within the Roman Empire that liked being Romans. These, these zealots saw Rome as, a, as something that was, uh, that was polluting God's people. So Paul uses a very loaded term when he says, for us it might be radical. The word radical can mean really, really loving Jesus and really being, uh, being His. The word radical within the political context can be violence, can it, Brother Kyle? The Islam we're afraid of, most of all, is radicalized Islam. So that's the kind of word we're talking about when he hears that word zealot. Paul is... Timothy, I mean, excuse me, Titus knew exactly what he was hearing. He said, look, you're supposed to be what? A zealot when it comes to what? Good works. Now, I've got a couple definitions. Thayer, one of the guys I trust, translated, he said, someone burning with zeal. So what kind of person does he want me to be in terms of good works? He wants me literally burning with zeal. Now, I'm going to tell you this, a little confession here, just like in the little bit of time I've got, here's my confession. I most of the time am not burning with zeal. Y'all burning with zeal? Is anybody in this room burning with zeal? Probably not, right? Probably not burning with zeal. I don't feel a flame right now in my passions because I'm not serving God hard enough. I'm not saying that it's that I'm right, and I'm not saying that you're right. I'm saying that this is a standard that God has given us. And we know that Paul's work here is cumulative. He's building on top of each other. It starts with our salvation. And we're learning to burn with zeal. He doesn't want us calm. He doesn't want us easygoing. He doesn't want us being as, well, you know what? That's just enough. There's not supposed to be enough of him. Not supposed to be, Brother Russell, enough of good works, enough of missions and evangelism. It's supposed to dawn on us one of these days that we just can't humanly do enough and be broken by that. That's burning with zeal. 
Something, man, we don't always have. But it's a standard for us. So burning with zeal. Um, other words, deeply committed. Hey, there's one thing the church of the 21st century has got to look at itself very long and hard in the mirror about every day. It's whether we're really committed. As we're as committed to Him, or in the fashion that He was committed to us, are we committed to Him now? Is carrying the cross the right metaphor for how we feel about Jesus on a daily basis? Because I'll be honest with you, knowing us, it's not really, it's not. Knowing me, the guy I see in the mirror, it's not me. But now, it's a standard that God's given us. He's given us the truth of it. And you know what else He's done? He's given us the power for that to happen in our lives. It doesn't mean I'm going to be that person right now. But it means if I'm not, I ought to be a little ashamed of myself. I shouldn't see God's standard fail to meet it and be easy about that. I think if there's one thing we've learned in the Southern Baptist Church, I mean Southern Baptist Church of the 21st century, that shows in the fact that we've lost not, you know, more than a million people, is the fact that we swallow a lot of bitter pills and we don't seem to be very upset about them. We have a lot of personal limitations. It doesn't seem to bother us very much. Well, it's just okay. Nobody does that. We, we tend to rationalize things very quickly. We don't need to. Deeply, deeply committed. Enthusiastic. I can't remember the last time I went to somebody and said, man, um, will you do this for me? And they were like, yes, I can't. I've been waiting for that. Nobody does that. What do they do? Well, I have to think about it. I have to pray about this. <laughs> and what they're really doing is they're praying about how to say no effectively. They're praying their way out of doing it. Because I've learned this about Southern Baptists. We have a lot of very convenient answers. My goodness, God told me exactly what I wanted. I don't have to do anything. No, he didn't. That's a lie. You're lying. You're just lying. And here's the problem. Is that that lie I can make, a, make fun of right now when we're standing at the Bema seat. It's going to scorch us. We're going to pass through as if through a fire. There's no doubt about that. But we're going to look and see all that wood, hay, and straw just burning up because we lie. We say, I, you, know, I don't, you know, God told me I didn't have to do that. And he's sitting up there thinking, no, I didn't. I never said anything of the sort. I've spoken on that issue in the Scriptures. Anything you heard that contradicts the Scriptures, you made up. Okay? Bottom line. So, enthusiastic. Zealots followed the example of Phineas. So, I'm not saying we got to go out and kill people. But Phineas was willing to do anything to satisfy the will of God. There's, a, there's an underlying thing. Now, I want to show you more here, okay? Um, first, a quote, very quickly, and I'm watching the clock. Um, C.S. Lewis, one of those guys I trust, goes and, um, and, and he, in mere Christianity, which he really talks about, and surprised by joy, he talks about his conversion. In mere Christianity, he really talks about everybody's conversion. He talks about what it really means to be a believer, okay? In mere Christianity, he says this. That he describes us, us before we're found, regular people. And please listen, he says, and out of that hopeless attempt, if there's anything that characterizes my lost days, and your lost days, is a hopeless attempt to make something out of a doomed life. 
hopeless attempt to somehow make this life okay for everybody. All right? Hopeless attempt has come nearly all we call human history. Money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empire, slavery. The long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. Oh my goodness gracious. Talk about somebody who knows people. It doesn't matter that he's been dead for 50 years now. C.S. Lewis knew people. Everything that's wrong with this world right now is because there are people in this world trying to make themselves happy some way, some way other than God. If I can make enough money or have the right wife or play the right sport, if my kid's good enough or they're smart enough or they get a scholarship or all these other things, all these nonsensical things that we throw our lives away about, they are nothing but vain, hopeless attempts to try to make ourselves happy with something other than the one who died on Calvary. There is no happiness outside of them. There just isn't. There isn't. All there is is the deadness of drugs. Do you know what I mean? I'm not going to be satisfied in God, so all I can do is take something into me that's going to make me forget how sad I am. I'll pour myself into my kids' lives until that runs out and I'll face depression when that's over with. I'll make an idol of my job until I get too old to work and they make me retire. Now what do I do? That's all we can do. Now, look, he concludes. Here's the issue. This is what's so... If you're a believer in this room, listen to me, please. Here's the issue. And I said, this one guy, so super smart, much smarter than Brother Tony, C.S. Lewis, came up with this idea. He didn't come up with this idea. He just saw it within passages, just like the one we're reading. He said, I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy. The only logical explanation is that it was made for another world. See, there's the issue with your salvation and my salvation. There's why even under the blood, we can have so much anxiety. Even under the blood, we can be so dissatisfied. Even under the blood, we can be so sinful at times is because we have not embraced the notion that we were made for another world than the one we're in. Let everybody else chase an IRA. You're not made for that. But everybody else throw themselves after recreation or whatever other nonsense they want to throw themselves after, you weren't made for that. You were made for something different, something better, more fantastic. It may not fill your bank account. It may not always keep everything the way you want it. But the reality is this. When you end your life, you'll never regret it. Nobody is right now in the presence of the Lord wishing they'd spent more time at work. Nobody. It is a lie. Everybody wishes they'd spent more time in praise. Everybody wishes they'd spent more time pursuing the God that died for them. They realize how wrong they are. That's what they realize. Now, no, no idea of this reliable faith, guys, it does anything other than, than build itself on the finished work of Jesus. In the end, if there's one thing that I want to begin our celebration of the fact that we are not made for this world with, it is the fact that we are not made with this, for this world because Jesus suffered and died for our sins. It never gets more complicated than that. It never gets more complicated than the God-man groaning on a tree for the evil that you and I did. That one event 
shook the cosmos. That one event washed away the sin of billions. That one event is the reason why we gather days like today. That's why we do it. Let's look just a little bit more. Um, uh, the Apostle John teaches us in 1 John 2 2. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Look, the work of Christ for the lost sinner is respectfully condensed into two actions. Now, Paul talks to Titus about them. Uh, the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross of Calvary for our redemption and for our purification. He's purifying for Himself. We are redeemed by the blood of Jesus. And that action that begins at our embracing of the truth, which saves our souls, begins a work of purification. We call it sanctification, in which God remakes us in His image. He doesn't want you looking like the world. He wants you looking like your Father. You're dead. The heavenly Father. So He wants us looking like. Look, Paul Washer said this, and this is another one of those little guys I trust a lot. He said, prior to and this is hard, by the way. Listen closely. Prior to regeneration and conversion, the sinner is a lover of self and pleasure and a hater of God and good. 2 Timothy 2, excuse me, 2 Timothy 3, 2 through 4, straight out of that is exactly dead on. However, in the titanic work of conversion, God regenerates or recreates the heart after his likeness in true righteousness and holiness. There's the hard part. What Washer seems to be saying is, is that after I've been regenerated by God, then I'm going to start to like totally look like God. Now that's fine. And maybe you're there. You'll look at me like you're there. I'm not there. The guy I see in the mirror, I'm ashamed of at least 50% of the time. And I'm not just saying that, because preachers sometimes say that, right? No, I'm really meaning it. I look, I'm like, oh. I can't tell you how many times I just walk away just shaking my head about me. You think I look down on you. I don't have time. When you're looking down on yourself all the time, you just don't really have time to look down on anybody else. But Washer says we're supposed to be so much better than that. Now, I'm going to start something that I'm just not going to have time to finish. That's okay. We'll finish next week. There's always another Wednesday. Praise God. And if Jesus comes back, you won't need it. Okay? You won't need it. Here's the word. Um, for, look, um, some younger guys, and I saw that Washer quote, a, a younger guy on Twitter just slid in this, this awesome Latin phrase. Simul justice et peccator. Now, I know it's not Latin class or anything like that, but it's one of those theological things that's been around so long as expressed in Latin. Do you know what I mean? It goes all the way back to when Latin was the language of, of the church. Now, I'm going to add something here because I think we need to go back farther. Um, there's a Peanuts cartoon. I heard Bob Godfrey say it and, and something I was watching that day. Peanuts cartoon said that well, she was writing a, a one, of the, one of the little characters was writing a, an essay about church history. And they asked her, the other character asked her, what do you know about church history? He said, well, my pastor was born in 1930. Um, mind you, it dates it a lot, does, in 1930. You know? But here's the point. is that I think most Christians, walk, and especially Protestants like us, walk around with that same kind of mindset. We think Jesus was like crucified in our lifetime, and the church hasn't progressed very much. Here's the reality. Most of the things we th that really matter, how you get saved, 
the Trinity, the triune God, uh, the meaning of baptism, the, the canon of the, of the New Testament Scriptures were set in the first 500 years of the church. It wasn't invented yesterday for our pleasure. It's really, really, really old. And there's a lot of ideas out there that we may not be aware of, and they matter. You're just not aware of them because you've had a lousy preacher. Okay? So I'm trying to explore some things. Simul just said Pector has been around for a thousand years. Now, let me explain to you. Simul is the word which gives us the English word simultaneous. All right? Justice is, is just like it sounds. It's righteousness or being just. Et is and. And the phrase peccator means sinner. So who are we in Christ under the blood? We are simultaneously righteous and sinners. Now does that define us? Yeah. That's exactly who we are. So we can take a breath now. Paul Washer is absolutely right on both counts. Are you righteous? Sure. Are you still a sinner? Absolutely. Absolutely. Is God reworking our lives to look like His? Absolutely. Now, I'm going to close here, but what I want to bring up is this. If this is true, if this is true, then you tell me what is our responsibility then? If I am both a sinner and righteous at the same time, but God has clearly stated His intention in my life is that I be purified, that I am sanctified, that I look more like Jesus every single day. That I joke about the old elephant joke, which is, how do you make a statue of an elephant? You get a big old rock and cut off everything that doesn't look like an elephant? There you go. Absolutely. <laughs> Only time I've ever made him laugh in his life. That is literally it. Okay. Literally it. They probably picked the right time. Good job. Good job, Ed McMahon. I'm Johnny Carson. Nobody here, like only like 10% of us are old enough to remember that. <laughs> you know, who that person is. Um, but um, so if, if that is what's going on in us and that God is cutting off those things that don't look like Jesus, what is your responsibility? It's not a rhetorical question. If I can give me an answer, what's your responsibility? Before we leave today, what's your responsibility to this process? Pray. Go back to that word zealot, right? Back to that word zealot. We are enthusiastic about our own sanctification. We want to see it happen. We aren't short-circuiting it. Do you think people ever short-circuit their own sanctification? It doesn't mean they can do that on the, over the long term, Miss Sandra. It means that over the short term, can I stand in the way? Absolutely. It, it explains that idea that we have all the time. Which is, if I assess myself, Brother Mike, month to month, sometimes I feel less like Jesus this month than I did last month, baby. You understand? Because I got in the way a little bit. Maybe as Brother Kyle talked about Friday, uh, Sunday night, maybe I listen pridefully. Maybe I'm not surrendering to the word when it's preached and taught to me because I've just I've gotten too big for my britches. Maybe I've lost sight of him in prayer. Maybe I've lost sight of him in study. Anybody here ever do devotion and not really devote? I have. 
I read those words, but it wasn't making the journey from here to here. And it was I didn't know how to do it, or nobody ever taught me. It was because I didn't want them to go from here to here. Because the greatest teacher in the world is the Holy Spirit, and He's right there. I mean, He doesn't need John MacArthur to make things simple. He communicates with the hearts of, of, of children. I didn't want to. So, so our responsibility before we go is what? Surrender to it. Surrender to it. God, teach me. Let's pray. Father God, I love and adore you. I thank you so much for the opportunity to come and to share with this, Father God. I pray, God, that it was meaningful. I pray, Father God, that it was simple. I pray, pray Father God, that it was straight to the point. And I pray, Father God, that we did not, I didn't leave anything out, God, that you desperately want here, Father. I, I care about your word, Father God, and I pray, Lord, that your people do too. And I pray now, Father God, that we will be those people, God, who surrender everything to you. Bless us now, Lord, in the name of Christ, I pray. Amen.